It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. And Saturday Night Live, episode 15 with host Jill Clayberg, originally aired on February 28th, 1976. It's me, Keith, as always, and as always also, we have Matt. How are you tonight, Matt? Feeling good. Love it when it's Saturday night. Awesome. And joining us tonight, our uh, guest host, good friend of ours, his name is Chili. How are you doing tonight, Chili? I'm doing awesome. Thank you guys very much for having me. Pretty uh, happy to be, I guess, the first guest host, you know, like uh, George Carlin <laughs> categories there. But I hope Matt likes me a little bit more than he liked George. Delighted to have you on the show, Chili. And Chili goes back a really long time with me and a and, uh, fair fair amount of time with uh, with Matt. But you guys haven't seen one another in about 20 years, if I'm not mistaken. It's true. Uh, that's approximate. I, I We might have missed the best years of each other's life, but hey, we have the rest. You know, you know what you've done. I mean, you didn't apologize yet, but I'm sure it'll. I'm sure it'll come. <laughs> so tonight we have Jill Claiborne with musical guest Leon Redbone, a musical appearance by the U.S. Coast Guard Idlers, and uh, the return of Andy Kaufman. So let's uh, let's talk Jill Clayburg first. Uh, are you gentlemen familiar with her work at all? I got nothing. I have no idea who she is. Uh, even after looking her up, I wasn't even familiar with most of the things she's done. I suppose what probably stood out to me the most is she does have a fairly well-known daughter, Lily Rabe from American Horror Story, which I do enjoy, but I just never knew that they were related until this afternoon. Yeah, I knew the daughter more than the mom, um, which is odd for me. So I'll give you a little background. Jill Clayburgh was born in New York City in 1944. She comes from a performing family. She debuted on screen in 1963 in Brian De Palma's The Wedding Party. Broadway was really her bread and butter in the early part of her career, but her film roles got bigger and bigger. One of her key roles was playing Carol Lombard in Gable and Lombard, and uh, it gets referenced tonight on the uh, on Saturday Night Live. She also did Silver Streak with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. At this point in time, she was about two years away from her Oscar and Golden Globe nominated and Con uh, Festival award-winning performance in a movie called An Unmarried Woman. At this point, she was on the way up career-wise, and and we'll save sort of the uh, the rest of it for the epilogue. So I, I this is one of the ones that I'm not particularly familiar with either. So really, when I'm going to think Jill Clayburgh in the future, it's going to be this appearance, I think. For better or worse? Yeah. Yeah, we'll see how everyone feels. So step one, we go to the cold opening. It's Lorne Michaels at his desk speaking to an interviewer about the importance of being a producer. And what jumped out at me right away was the uh, the picture of Richard Nixon prominently appearing on Lorne's desk. Chevy Chase comes in and he says he doesn't want to do the fall anymore. He's sick of being a clown. Lorne Michaels says that they can't do the show if Chevy Chase doesn't fall. And Lorne refers to stacks of mail he gets about Chevy falling. He pulls out a letter that uh, is most likely not anything to do with Chevy falling and demands he does this chandelier and ladder bitch from the Christmas show again. Chevy leaves. He goes to the stage, complains the whole time. As he goes through the audience, an audience member asks if he's just going to do the chandelier and ladder again. Chevy decides that he's not going to do the fall. Storms back to Lauren's office, falling all the way. 
And then he gives the line as he slips on Lauren's desk. How was this intro for you, fellas? Yeah, sure. I uh, actually enjoyed this cold open quite a bit. I always like when, especially young uh, Lauren Michaels is in there before he's fully established as, you know, he's basically a character now in 2021. People know to see him, but I like the earlier appearances he has. (laughs) The stacks of mail line in particular, I did laugh out loud at because it was just the one letter. And then when Chevy asked to see it, and he just says, uh, no, you don't need to see it. I actually enjoyed this cold open quite a bit for the time. A big thing is, too, uh, you guys have obviously seen way more of these than I have in the last while. But uh, I've recently done a show where I had to like do a pratfall, and it is deceptively hard. So it's always impressive seeing how well Chevy Chase actually manages to pull this off, and you can see how it became his calling card because it's not easy to do, and his are very impressive for such a long time. I liked the. Uh, I always like when Saturday Night Live does the the backstage. I don't want to use the word meta, but I'm gonna. I like the, kind of the meta stuff where they talk about the show behind the scenes of the show. So uh, it, it was fresh for me. I enjoyed it, and uh, I, I also thought the letters were funny. That one solitary letter on yellow paper. Keith, do you know who the lady was? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, the, the interviewer? Yeah, the uh, one sitting across from Lauren. It's Edie Baskin. That's the uh, photographer and the graphic designer responsible for all the title cards and the uh, bumper images. Nice. Yeah, cool. One other thing that stood out to me, too, is just essentially how shitty like the audience area looked as Chevy was going through. Like Nowadays, you catch glimpses of the audience, and it looks like a more, you know, like a film set, whereas... When he's going through the audience and just like the drab grayish green background with, I forget the name of the, there's like a big branding corporation logo on the back or the name on the back. And it was just shocking how rinky dink it looked to see where the audience was sitting. <laughs> it, it, shocked, it shocked me quite a bit. And the, uh, the audience member that asked if he's just going to do the chandelier bit again is uh, Rosie Schuster, writer, and uh, the guy he knocked over when he was heading through with uh, the donuts or the breakfast or whatever it was, Alan's Y. Bell. So there's two writers, and one of my favorites, when the writers stick their uh, stick their faces in. So then we go to the monologue. Jill Clayburgh comes out in what looks like uh, like my grandmother's house coat. I actually thought it was a robe or something. She says she's nervous about doing live TV, so she went to the person on the cast who's most experienced in live television. It's, of course, Don Pardo, the announcer who spent many years as a live uh, game show announcer. She went to him to get some advice. She mentioned that they went out uh, for dinner and went to his house and stuff. And as she talks, Pardo comes in doing his best uh, game show voice, describing his stuff. I really enjoyed Pardo in this. This cracked me up. Clayberg probably could have been anyone, but uh, Pardo won the minute for me. This is the worst of 15 monologues we've had so far. I really hated this. She's completely useless you're right she, she could have been anybody i didn't i didn't laugh yeah i kind of gotta agree with matt on that one i always enjoy when don pardo gets something to do but it didn't help that this was a celebrity who i had no idea who she was at this point i hadn't even pressed pause to uh, look up who she was because i was hoping well maybe i'll get something out of the monologue and you would think don pardo was the host as opposed to jill i was surprised to hear how much stage experience she had too because she did not seem comfortable like in front of the audience almost i thought maybe she might have been just a screen actress or even a model or something like that at this point because she just didn't seem like somebody who was comfortable in the position she was in and I kind of felt like maybe that's why they relied so much on the Don Pardo stuff too because maybe she just didn't have much 
to say in an entertaining way in the live fashion. Okay, so the next bit we go to is uh, great moments in history. Jane Curtin voices an intro to a sketch with Dan Aykroyd and Lorraine Newman as Sigmund and Anna Freud. Anna crawls up on her father's lap and talks about having a dream about a man who looked like her dad who was in a room with all her male cousins and they were bound and gagged and uh, stripped naked and they were offering her bananas and she would only eat the biggest and ripest banana, the one that came from the man that looked like her dad. Talked about going through a tunnel and a train and uh, falling in a hole and then at the end of it all, they smoked a cigarette. As she goes on, Freud gets more and more flustered. This was that sort of funny awkward for me, but the audience reaction might uh, might prove how effective the sketch was because of how much Freud's theories have uh, entered the public consciousness. This wasn't great. It was definitely awkward, but it was a great job, I thought, by Aykroyd and uh, Newman. Yeah, I mean, I'd be inclined to agree in a way. No question. It was incredibly creepy watching it. It was not something that, like the first go around, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it because I almost had to turn away from the screen. And honestly, like listen to uh, some of your like your guys' past episodes, uh, especially for uh, ones where I haven't watched the actual SNL episode. You kind of think like, oh, you know, it can't be, it can't be that bad. It's you know, it's we're probably seeing it through a 2020 lens or something. But oh my goodness, this was uh, I'm shocked that this this made the air at all in a way. But great job by Aykroyd in particular. He could have been a lot more over the top of it, so he did do well with it. But it was a, it was a creepy little two and a half minutes. I agree. I thought I thought it was shit. Uh, I thought it was a terrible sketch. The whole this is just it was just this weird pedo joke about him fucking a babied up Lorraine Newman. Like, yeah, okay, they they performed capably, but what a dreadful sketch. Really couldn't believe that they were like, yeah, let's go with this off the top. Terrible. <laughs> I was wondering the same thing. Is like, so is the. Is the uh, intonation here that he actually did plow his daughter and does his estate know about this sketch? It's a pretty, uh, (laughs) it was pretty rough. I will say one thing that also surprised me a lot, though, is that I was shocked how much Lorraine Newman in this sketch looked like Anna Kendrick. I looked at it like, holy shit, that really looks a lot like Anna Kendrick. But I don't think they'll be uh, doing a rehash of this sketch anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I hadn't even considered the fact that there was a it was a molestation joke. I took it more as a uh, Anna Freud had the Electra complex where she was in love with her dad, but I hadn't thought of it in the other context at all. Probably, it's probably for the best not to go back and rewatch it to see if it's there. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, I mean, regardless of what way you slice it, it was it was it was an awkward few minutes. The good news is though, once it like once the sketch is over. Actors did fine, but I said, well, you know what? At least it's over with. <laughs> At least that's a, it's a great moment in history. That's done for the week. That's done for the episode. Our next one, Jill Carson, guidance counselor. Uh, Jill Claiborne plays Jill Carson, a guidance counselor at Jimmy Hoffa Memorial Question Mark High School. This is a take on the type of movie where, you know, any kid can be changed by a little bit of extra attention from a well-meaning grown-up. So uh, John Belushi comes in as a thug student, Julio Alvarez. Jill does the first of her many examples where she says, you know, Walt Disney was going to be a fridge repairman until his guidance counselor guided him into a career in animation. Chevy Chase playing a coach. Dan Aykroyd plays a football player. Uh, a middle-class reformer story, a parody of these old-school movies, and uh, I, di- I thought it was long, didn't think it was particularly funny, thought Garrett and Gilda were great, thought Belushi was okay. 
She is 0 for 2 for me on this. I, I really thought this should have been Jane Curtin. Jane Curtin should have done this. The sketch should have been uh, significantly shorter. I thought Belushi was kind of wasted. This is another miss for me. Again, I, I didn't find it funny. I thought she was terrible. I, I'm getting bad vibes from this episode so far. I actually, in a way, think this might have been one of the best uses for Jill. And even that was not a home run by any stretch. I don't want to be coming in my first time and sort of bashing everything. But so far, it's been... It's been rough. I'm not the biggest Belushi fan in the world. Uh, coming in looking like adorable Adrian Adonis for the whole sketch. But like, yeah, it was just, it was the second sketch in a row with very weird vibes. Within the first two minutes, he's cutting the telephone line. Definitely implied he's going to rape her. Then all of a sudden Chevy bursts in. And I do get it, sort of the dangerous minds, like you said, Keith, like I can change him. But that first scene in the actual office, it was kind of rough. And then the best part was definitely the second half where they were in the uh, in Julio's parents with Gilda and with Garrett. That was by far the best third of this sketch. There were things I liked about the sketch. You know, the line, oh, what squalor is a good line that I can actually see myself using for a long time to come. <laughs> the subtle joke of having like all the wife beaters hanging on the clothesline. I enjoyed that. But I think maybe the biggest miss for me was the whole operatic football thing. I felt like that was a half hashed out sketch that was just sort of sitting on the floor and someone said, oh, we can squeeze this into the guidance counselor sketch. Because even after rewatching it, I couldn't quite fully understand what the point of the whole opera football connection there was and finally we come to our first musical uh musical appearance it's leon redbone singing ain't misbehave in the 1929 song adapted from a fats waller tune matt are you familiar with leon redbone i am not chili uh, i know you've heard him because i used to play him a lot are you familiar <laughs> with leon the guy very first the first thing i thought of is i've been listening to the guardians of the galaxy soundtrack a lot yeah. Like, All right, Leon Redbone, come and get your love. Like, yeah, no, no that's, that's just Redbone, Redbone. That's just Redbone. <laughs> so the second I heard Leon Redbone's voice, I was like, oh, okay. I like this guy. I was pretty happy with it. I, For me, this bit was, uh, I love this bit. This was a home run for me. So uh, Leon Redbone, he spent his career under a shroud of mystery about his overall persona. Now, a quick internet search can give you all the details you need about the real Leon Redbone, but uh, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to I'm gonna play along with the kayfabe here. He, he came to prominence during the folk revival, performing old vaudeville-era performances, Tin Pan Alley stuff, um, and he just became one of these odd outliers that uh, existed in the 70s, performing a, a different time. Now, he always maintained that he wasn't being mysterious. He just didn't offer much about his life, and people filled in the blanks. Some theories about him that existed at the time, first and foremost, a lot of people thought he may have actually been a time traveler, possibly <laughs> a, possibly a ghost, or uh, Frank Zappa or Andy Kaufman in disguise. When Redbone died in 2019, his website uh, listed his age as 127, so they leaned in pretty pretty tight to it. Um, <laughs> and modern audiences probably best know him as the voice of Leon the Snowman and Elf. Leon Redbone's one of my favorite performers. Um, I absolutely love his act, and I, I, I thought this was a, a definite shining moment. For, uh, for this episode. I completely loved it. I, I just think uh, what Leon Redbone was doing was was pretty pretty remarkable stuff and highly recommend his music to anyone. This was pretty good for me. You know I've been, uh, I've been pretty hard on the music in season one, and this was different, which I just automatically appreciated. And not being familiar going in, yeah, I thought it was really cool, and it made me want to check out more. So you can't ask for more than that. Like you said, you used to always play his stuff this is the first time i've ever seen leon redbone he is not at all what i thought 
he would look like. I figured he was legitimately like an old timey like vaudeville guy who somehow hit it big in his 80s around this time frame. I, you know, he wasn't even 30 years old. I don't think at the time this was filmed. No, he wasn't. No, but it struck me that he looked he looked and sounded more like an SNL character than the actual SNL characters <laughs> on this episode. <laughs> Uh, it's funny you mentioned his age. I was reading like Bob Dylan was a big fan, and Bob Dylan actually once said if he ever formed a re- his own record label, the first person he'd sign would be Leon Redbone. But he said I've stood right next to Leon Redbone, and I don't know if he's twenty five or if he's sixty five. So uh, yeah, no, just a, a remarkably interesting performer. Can you see why people might have thought it was Frank Zappa in disguise? I mean a little bit, but uh, maybe I'm too familiar. There there was uh, some at a glance similarities but uh it it didn't uh, i i wouldn't have thought that i guess the last thing that surprised me was when you just said that he died in 2019 (laughs) i thought he died in the late 80s when uh bob hoskins made him laugh too hard and who framed roger rabbit (laughs) he looked like one of the weasels from that movie (laughs) i could not get it out of my head the second i saw him (laughs) <laughs> so our next bit is uh, Garrett Morris talking about how white people have treated black people so poorly in the United States for so long and that they should feel guilty. But a good way to relieve that guilt is to send money to the White Guilt Relief Fund, care of Garrett Morris. And if they do it before July 4th, he'll send them a scroll and a membership card certifying them as an honorary black person. I laughed through this whole thing. It was kind of too much like the other sketch where Chevy Chase is like, send me weed. I thought it was a bit of a play on that. It was good. Garrett's always good. And as Chevy would say, happy to see you getting some time on the show, Garrett. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed this quite a bit. I think this is the only sketch from this episode I've actually seen before. So I think it's definitely one of the things that I've seen on maybe like Garrett Moore's highlight reels or whatnot, but it was good. I like this a lot. Garrett's extremely charismatic and entertaining when given the right stuff to do. He looked a little glassy-eyed in this one too. I, 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 kind, of, <laughs> I kind of wondered what he did between the uh, Jill Claiborne sketch and that one. The Jill Claiborne sketch, just going back to that, I was, I always wondered if he knew he would have lines because there was a lot of lines during that where he was kind of like stepping over people and sort of coming back. And I'm like, I don't, know if if garrett read his script or if he just like looked it over before going on he's got enough talent where he can kind of get through that type of thing so our, our next bit is another great moment in history isadora duncan played by jill clayberg asks her friend uh, played by gilda radner if she should wear the long scarf or the short scarf when she goes out in the evening for a open air ride with a friend she goes with the long one and that is the uh, the great moment in history Just to give background on that, in 1927, uh, Isadora Duncan was killed when her long scarf got caught in the axle of an open-topped car she was driving in. So that's the context there. Really very bad, again, for me. Uh, Jane Curtin could have replaced Jill for this entire episode, and it would have been better. They they didn't even need to bring her in. I I thought this was atrocious. Nothing she's doing is working for me tonight. I kind of have to agree. Like This is one that, at least the first one, it wasn't my favorite joke in the world it was kind of creepy but it was it was well done this one i just found it was just very strange it was a one joke build up and at this point like late 70s like isadora duncan would have been dead for about 50 years is that something that even for the you know the hip crowds of the 1970s like that would be like somebody do kids today crack up about like natalie wood jokes or stuff like that it's <laughs> is it really that something that's worth taking up so much time on your network show to do one joke about how a lady died 50 years ago because she wore a long scarf. And I guess on top of that too, the little bit of research I did too, it's weird because they said her 
it was her friend Eleonora Eleonora Deuce or Eleonora Dose was Gilda Radner's character. Yeah. But in yeah. the things I've looked up, it said it was a, someone completely different. Uh, Mary Desty was her name, who like saw off Isadora and gave her the scarf. So it's just very weird that they changed who yeah. the person was. I know they didn't have Wikipedia at the time, but I hope someone got fired for that blunder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were enough details out there, I'm sure. I mean, that was a, a well-known story, uh, probably not in, 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 in 1976, but uh, but yeah no they definitely uh, they they definitely departed from history on that one, as and well to, as like as well as the bad taste. Let's not uh, let's not overlook that one too. So and just slightly to Chili's point, like Saturday Night Live is this is supposed to be the cool show right now. This is the hot cutting edge show. You stay home on a Saturday night, you get pumped up for this episode. Is this what you want to see? Um. So then we go to weekend update. Chevy Chase leads with uh, he's on the phone. He says no, you put hot water in your mouth and then ice cubes and you switch it back and forth and then he gives us the opening the opening line i'm chevy chase and you can't gerald ford won the new hampshire primary he throws to lorraine newman who's in new hampshire all alone because all the candidates and all the voters have moved to massachusetts to vote in that primary jimmy carter won the democratic primary so i expect this is when we're going to start to see a bit more jimmy carter jokes sneaking in um nixon's pardoned in china there's an artist doing drawings of the patty hearst courtroom trial as chevy narrates francisco franco is holding on to his fight to remain dead they talk about the ideal toy joey doll which was being released and nasa forgot about a bunch of uh, astronauts and let them float in the ocean for two years and they were picked up by a spanish fisher fishing trawler and then we get to the the, the commercial break so far this uh this for me was a, a few chuckles but nothing hilarious i appreciate that chevy keeps going hard pardon the pun with the blowjob jokes up the t- top of the sketches that's that's something i i thought lorraine newman was funny in that uh short burst but otherwise this is some pretty generic topical weekend update stuff yeah i kind of felt like most of it was you had to be there uh, at the time that's always a negative thing with weekend update i suppose is it's it's by its very nature it is topical it's whatever happened that week and you can't expect most of that to transfer over to so long afterwards but, you know, I did like how uh, Chevy, at the very beginning, he kind of flubbed one of his lines a bit. Instead of making a big deal out of it, he just kind of gave a bit of a smirk and then recovered pretty well. I like that surprisingly a lot for something that was just a small little quirk. Yeah, he handles it well. Like, uh, nowadays, they'd break down laughing and everybody be laughing to be all over the internet the next day. But uh, he usually gives the audience a little knowing glance and a little smirk. He fucks up well. So then we go to our commercial. It's H&L Brock. We've got Belushi back as Lowell Brock. Um, tax tip 13, maybe. I forget. Um, the IRS doesn't require churches to keep financial records. Um, his brother became a priest, and their partner became a rabbi. They're offering people to donate large amounts of money. They get the receipt for the deduction, and then they get 95% back. Um, loved this commercial. I, I thought it was a highlight of the show. I enjoyed the commercial, too. It's probably my favorite thing belushi did on this episode i'm glad to see that something that happened that was able to be parodied so long ago like the religious tax exemptions i'm glad that's no longer an issue anymore so we can all just brush our hands off and laugh about how crazy things were back in the day (laughs) belushi he did very well here i like belushi in a way much more when he's more buttoned down like this even though i know it's not what his bread and butter was I would agree with that, even though I don't think this sketch worked nearly as well as the other ones. Uh, I I thought they had two good ones. They obviously did well, despite being pulled from syndication or uh, whatever you had referenced. But uh, yeah, I don't know. This one just didn't land as much for me. I I, I didn't think he was as invested either. Um, So then we go to uh, Emily Latella. Emily 
is uh, has been grading on us a little bit with the repetition. Uh, she does a quick thing about the uh, the the death penalty uh, in lieu of death penalty. Again, she did what she did okay, but uh, this is this has gone on long enough. I think it's been too repetitive. Yeah, and I mentioned uh, in another episode there needs to be jokes within the jokes. There's no jokes within the jokes here. This is just. Uh... This is filling time, getting a popular character on the air. She was fine. You guys have seen much more of this than I have, but even just the little bit, Guild is fine, but it's nothing to write home about. So now we go to the uh, the Coast Guard Idlers, uh, accompanied by uh, Howard Shore and the Shore Patrol, and Jill Clayberg comes out in a minute. Uh, the Idlers are a uh, male acapella group formed in 1957 by members of the U.S. Coast Guard. They've toured all over the place, singing Carnegie Hall, Super Bowl, Disney World, S- Smithsonian, and they typically do U.S.-themed patriotic music and sea shanties. So the Idlers sing a song first, and a Chiron comes up with a list of people who uh, dolphins are definitely smarter than. It's a very strange and random list. Then Clayberg comes out and uh, sings Sea Cruise. I found Jill Clayberg, who, who is a did do musical theater. I found her very awkward here. This is like slightly half decent karaoke. Now the uh, the the Sea Cruise song, all I could hear was the Cool Whip jingle. I actually really liked the the Idlers. It really served no purpose on a show like SNL, but to listen to it, they were fine. They sounded great. And I get that they have to throw something visual on top of it. So they had the people that are, whatever, people who are dumber than dolphins or what it was. Uh, I did find it weird. There was, I think, three boxers were mentioned there, which kind of shows how much bigger boxing was then than nowadays to get two or three references in a relatively short list. Once she came out, it was it was almost embarrassing. It reminded me of like on The Office when Michael Scott would show up and like ruin something everybody else is kind of enjoying by like forcing themselves into it. <laughs> and it was like, once again, at this point, I paused it to see what she did and seeing all the theater and all the stuff she did. I was very, very put off by how I don't, I don't need to pick on her. I'm sure she'll, I'm sure she's doing just, well, she's not doing just fine, but yeah, no, it was, uh, it was rough. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Yeah. Did not get the point uh, did not get the sketch again. Every time she comes out, I'm like, "Is that Jane Curtin?" No, no, it's Jill. And yeah, I didn't, I didn't think the scrolling names were funny. This is, uh, this is killing me. This episode is killing me. Let's see if the next segment will save it. Our next one is a commercial for Car Yummies, and it starts with Ackroyd. Uh, well, Ackroyd and Morris are the uh, stars of this, uh, this bit, and it starts with Ackroyd saying, "I'm sure your whole family loves cheese, but one member never gets enough. Your car." Garrett says uh, these little cheese yummies, which are, I think, little crackers made of cheese, are the perfect between-pump snack for the car on the go. This uh, got probably got the biggest laugh from me of the show. Nice, quick. It was short. It was fun. Yeah, Dan's in his element when he does these. Uh, I love his pitch man and didn't overstay its welcome. Just a, a fun commercial parody in an, ep- in an episode like this. Definitely a highlight for me as well. I love the between-the-pump snack. Yeah, this is just, this is Ackroyd doing Ackroyd. I don't think the material he had was necessarily the best, but he elevated what he did have to work with, especially that first line you mentioned about the one member of your family who doesn't guess uh, enough cheese didn't overstay the welcome, like you guys said. I thought Ackroyd and Morris played a good pair together. They seem to be enjoying it and working together on that one. 
So there's a little Chiron on somebody in the audience, and it says uh, that they're wearing rubber underwear, and the person seems to enjoy it for a few seconds there. Um, the next bit is a Muppet sketch, and the problem is the Muppets are at the Grammys, and uh, one of the cast members is replacing them with his hands. So the basic story this person, uh, the cast member, acts out is that a uh, housewife is left all alone when her husband goes away, and the milkman comes in. The wife, unfortunately, can't pay for the milk. So the milkman suggests getting comfy. Uh, the housewife removes the milkman's uh, watch, and then the camera exposes Chevy Chase as the puppeteer. Uh, this is a pretty good Muppet segment, even though there's no Muppets there. Yeah, slightly improved in their absence. I didn't, I didn't laugh. Maybe, and it wasn't. I don't think because I was dreading the Muppets, but I mean, they certainly didn't bother to increase the caliber of the jokes any. I'm gonna disagree a little bit. This may have been one of my favorite little bits on the show, just because. First of all, once they mentioned the Muppets just after listening uh, to you guys for the, the last several episodes. Like, oh, fuck, here come the Muppets. And then it was nice to not see them because naturally yeah. I like the Muppets, but just not on SNL. There was just little things that it's a simple, it's, it's grade school stuff, but even just had the milkman came in carrying a glass of milk, just stupid stuff like that I enjoyed. And it was quick. They didn't really have much of a way out of it. I mean, where they just showed Chevy for no reason he threw to the short film. But I guess how else do you get out of Chevy Chase doing hand puppets for two minutes? But I actually enjoyed this a lot more than... I can't even tell you why I liked it, but I had a few chuckles in there. Did uh, either of you guys get the sense that they were like, okay, the Muppets are not here tonight. Let's just send Chevy out. No script. Go ahead. I mean, I'd believe it. I didn't think about it when I was watching it. But uh, as soon as you say that, as I reflect, uh, I would buy that for a dollar easily it's probably definitely something where backstage the not yet ready for primetime players who knows maybe they weren't too happy about losing a segment every week to the muppets and maybe this is something they've been doing to mock them since the beginning right and then so oh, muppets can't be here chevy go out do your hand puppet thing that you keep <laughs> doing backstage <laughs> Hadn't thought of that, that they could very easily have been backstage making fun of them and doing their own filthy puppet shows, you know. Wouldn't have put it past them at all. <laughs> Keith, you said as well that the writers already didn't care for doing the sketches. Is that correct? Oh, God, yeah. No, no, they didn't like it. So we have a Gary Weiss film uh, with a, a gentleman with his dog, and the dog it does these tricks and understands English fairly well. I, I'm not going to go into this too much. I just didn't really like this one. I thought this was an absolute flop from Gary Weiss, who I've, I've come to really enjoy. I was actually more disappointed that this wasn't what I expected it was going to be more than the actual film. But uh, yeah, I didn't like this one. This sucked. <laughs> I hated pretty much every second of what this was. Like there was no storyline to it. There's no rhyme or reason. There was no punchline. Like it was just uncomfortable, especially, you know, seeing a guy who in the beginning is like, okay, well, he's just irritating a dog. Then he's making, he's essentially making out with the dog for about 30 seconds. And then just showing the dog, like doing some random trick, digging something out of uh, a rubber mat or whatever it was. It was it had no arc, it had no story to it, and then just at the very end, they just got away from the dog completely, and it just showed him in front of in front of the World Trade Center. This may yeah. be the worst thing to ever happen to the World Trade Centers, <laughs> being involved in this sketch. It was awful. I hated this. I, uh, I thought it was bad, too. It's certainly my least favorite. I mean, I'm a little more understanding, perhaps, and I don't mean that in a negative way, Chili, of Gary Weiss's weird slice-of-life films, just after having seen them. But uh, that doesn't mean I liked this one. This, this one felt misguided. 
I like weird stuff. I like, you know, like you said, slice of life. But for this, I I don't know whose life this is a slice of. But <laughs> I don't want to know that person. <laughs> so our next segment is uh, Andy Kaufman doing Old McDonald. So, uh, yeah, Andy Kaufman comes up and he gets four. Uh, well, actually, uh, Jill Kleber gets four volunteers from the audience for Andy's next bit. He does his old McDonald routine and uh, does it very well. I really enjoyed this. And I kind of want to hear what you guys have to say before delving in a little further. Uh, my favorite part of the episode so far, I was skeptical going in. I was like, mm, the audience, I don't know. And I did think I, uh, I thought I saw a guy pointing at audience members off to my left uh, for Jill to pick, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I was skeptical going in. Uh, but good gosh, when it was over, it was my favorite part of the episode so far. I loved it. I'd never seen this act before, and uh, I thought it was brilliant. Cracked me right up. I always think I'll dislike Andy Kaufman more than I do when I actually see him doing his thing. Um, maybe because so many people have come forward and like tried to like imitate it and just done it poorly. But you do see how much craft he puts into what looks like there's you know essentially like a, a something to do at a kid's birthday party. But he does it so well and with such conviction, and that's obviously what he's known for. Cheers to the first girl who did the quack quacks. Yeah, yeah. If she was a star. If it wasn't for her and the four audience members they pulled up were like the other three. This yeah. could have been a bit of a bomb, but she was getting cheers more than Andy was. So cheers to her. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You know, he had, and this is this is what I was going to kind of go on about Andy. So he had this time on, you know, network television, and he basically chose to give it away to the to to four audience members. Um, they were the stars of this one. I, I really enjoyed this, and it's dangerous to do. Um, I did notice that that guy off to the left there, Matt, he was sort of directing traffic a little bit. Yeah. Um, but also knowing Andy Kaufman's style of performance, I don't think he would necessarily pre-pick the audience either. So I was wondering what that guy was doing. You know, maybe they did do a pre-pick. Maybe before the show started, they had like something with audience participation. They found, you know, this person's being more engaged, that person's being more engaged, but... Even with that, like I said, the the fourth guy wasn't too bad, but the guy and the girl in the middle, if they were pre-picked, I would not want to see the other people who weren't picked. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. The guy with the glasses, he, you know, I'm a bit of a true crime nut. He looked like every 1970s serial killer, just like squished <laughs> together into one. <laughs> he looked like Dave Berkowitz. Like, it's just, he might be a sweetheart, but. He also had some Stephen Page from uh, Bare Naked Ladies thrown in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> And we have uh, some comments here from D, who uh, has been enjoying and tracking Andy Kaufman's involvement on the show. So take it away, D. This was interesting, um, to say the least. I'm struggling to find the words to really talk about this, um, because I have a couple of things that I want to say. First of all, we all know that I love Andy Kaufman. Andy can do whatever he wants. And I think that is what I'm trying to get at here. Andy Kaufman, at this point seems to be able to do literally whatever he wants. Um, they trust him to take that spot, and uh, it doesn't matter if if he is literally just lip-syncing and dragging other people up on stage. I have actually been watching little clips of Andy Kaufman over the past few months um, when we weren't recording. Y'all don't know that. Y'all don't know when we record and when we don't, honey. But when we weren't recording, I have been watching uh, just little clips of Andy as a tree. You know, that's my boy. I love to see him 
that's my man's i love to see him and i have noticed that it seems to be like a common trend uh throughout his career that uh he just likes to make people uncomfortable or like make them feel weird or make you question like what the fuck is he doing and i love that about him and i love that everybody trusts and allows him to exercise his comedic strength in whatever way he wants um so yeah i guess that's really all i have to say like praise to andy kaufman i love that man i didn't like this little segment though i'm not gonna lie there was not enough andy he's all i want to see you know i don't want to see these you know friggin susan and tom huckle in the audience i don't care about them just care about andy so then we go to uh, Chevy Chase and Jill Clayburgh at a restaurant. She asks what he's thinking, and uh, she just keeps asking him questions about why he loves her, how much he loves her, and why. Pretty relentless, actually. And then he finally asks what she's thinking. She says warthogs, and they jump to uh, just a quick video of warthogs. This was dumb. I didn't like it. Very dumb. I did like when uh, when she was like, what do you love about me? And he said, well, your inquisitive nature. Uh, that, that was a laugh for me. But uh, otherwise, again... She's uh, she's a terrible host. Yeah, I got to agree 100%. In my notes for this, I honestly just have, well, you're inquisitive. That was a good line. And that was it. Like, there was nothing to this. It's even just the tone of it kind of brings things down. And maybe you do need to be brought down a little bit after like an Andy Kaufman bit. But this whole pretend romantic scenery, maybe it's because it's the 70s and the way things are shot. It just... it brought the energy down just watching it because i was like what what is this i don't know what it is honestly i chuckled when they showed the warthog but it was it was rough <laughs> it made no sense this one to me it seemed like they pulled the ripcord and used like their emergency get out of the sketch free thing just warthogs all of a sudden pictures of, you know the, the the video of warthogs yeah i, I don't know this was bad uh, uh they do a chiron on john bedford tipton and uh the guy laughs for a second and then he sort of reacts as if the camera's been on me too long. Get it off. So John Bedford Tipton was a character from a anthology show called The Millionaire. And this character would give a million dollars to just a random person and the audience would track how their life went because of that million bucks. So then we get back to Leon Redbone, um, joined by Jonathan Dorn on the tuba. And he does Big Time Woman. And uh, has a lot of fun with making some uh, some vocal trumpet sounds. Again, I just I I could watch Leon Redbone all night. Loved it. Once again, I I enjoyed it. I'm not sure what percentage of the audience would get this, but my first thought when I saw his tuba accompanist was uh, Eric Nagler from the old Sharon Lois and Bram show. Maybe because <laughs> he had like the big uh, you know the big trumpet and the the similar type beard. But I, I really enjoyed this. I enjoy. Leon Redbone, but I found this was probably the opposite to what you said. I don't know if it's something I'd ever sit down and listen to him all night. He's nice to have, like, to listen to a song when you're listening to an anthology of other songs. It'd be like the time I bought, like, a Primus CD. It's like, oh, yeah, this is great, but then you really can't get from start to finish with just <laughs> yeah. that. But his uh, mouth trumpet stuff was very impressive. I also dug it, uh, and again, not to repeat myself, but I'm generally hard on the music on season one. And I mean, this isn't, to Chili's point, I'm not going to sit down and listen to this. I probably wouldn't buy the CD, but I, I at least enjoy that they're mixing it up. It's been so funky. I don't know. It's just nice to have something different. Uh, great moments in her story. 
We have Jawalahal Nehru and uh, Indira Gandhi, played by Belushi and Newman. And uh, she was picked on on the playground or something. And she vows to grow up to be a tyrant. I I didn't like this. Aside from the cultural appropriation stuff, this was just not a, a fun sketch. I didn't like it. Uh, highlight being Lorraine Newman looked really cute. But other than that, uh, this was this was dumb. Yeah, really a one-note joke sketch filler like what was left on the cutting room floor this week i can't imagine but uh yeah uh, i felt like filler to me yeah the second i saw new delhi india 1936 i just thought about the cast they had at the time and i thought oh shit like you know i understand different time but you knew it was going to be exactly what it was it was bad accents yeah oddly enough they were just talking over each other too like it was it really seemed like they just said you guys go out there and take a look at the script for two minutes and then we'll push you out there 20 minutes later. I mean, I don't, I'm not too familiar with the history behind those you know, real life people, but uh, the, the, the punchline was either delivered very poorly or was non-existent. So this was definitely a low point beyond, like you said, beyond just the cultural appropriation. It was just not a well put together sketch. We now go to quite possibly my favorite microsecond of the uh, show is Dan Aykroyd standing there and goes, hi, my name is Danny. What's yours? Um, (laughs) And he's out to introduce a movie by a gentleman by the name of Walter Williams. And uh, this movie is called Mr. Bill. It's one of the home movies. Williams was making short eight millimeter films in New Orleans, just showing them around town, showing them to friends. And when the home movie uh, call went out, people persuaded him to send one in. So he sent in a bunch and they picked this one, Mr. Bill. In a fun twist, Williams is from New Orleans. He's telling all his friends in New Orleans that he's going to be on Saturday Night Live. But this was the weekend of Mardi Gras. Saturday Night Live was preempted in uh, New Orleans, and none of his family or friends got to see it. But it's basically a a, a, a little Play-Doh man a parody of a kid's show where he gets completely destroyed and tortured. What was your thoughts on Mr. Bill? Because Mr. Bill is going to go on to be a regular on the show. Not a regular regular, but make many more appearances. Knowing that this was the first, because I tried looking up if this was the first one, because there was no... There was no gimmick to it in terms of it wasn't Mr. Bill goes shopping or Mr. Bill's Christmas or nothing like that. So I was like, I was questioning if this was the first Mr. Bill. Uh, Knowing it was, it's actually, I enjoy it more because as I guess we'll say basic as it was, it's more forgivable because it was the first one. I enjoyed it. Familiar with Mr. Bill already. The quality, and I get that it's eight millimeter, but the quality of the film itself is Almost shocking to think about the fact it was on, you know, a popular network TV show at the time. It was such dark and grimy, but yeah, I enjoy it more now knowing it was the first one. I also thought it was great. I was looking forward to it. I was waiting for it this whole episode. Uh, I knew it was coming up. Uh, I didn't really know much of the history of it, but of course it's a classic and it still cracks me up. And yeah, this is the kind of weird toward the end of the episode humor that I that I appreciate most out of Saturday Night Live. This is the kind of stuff that should be on late. And in the weird trivia note, um, Mr. Hands was is credited to have been played by Vance DeGeneres, older brother to Ellen. Oh shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, other places don't credit him, but uh, at some point, Vance DeGeneres does step in to play Mr. Hands, and uh, and uh, most of the other voices are done by uh, Williams. Yeah, this is fun. I look forward to more. A Chiron on an older couple in the audience says, adjust your set if it makes you happy. 
Uh, we then go to a very quick bit at the end here. It's the wedding between Betty Grable and Carol Lombard. It's a parody on uh, Gable and Lombard, which Glayberg had uh, appeared in. Um, but this one is Betty Grable and Carol Lombard. So it's Grable and Lombard. Yeah, that was the end. Uh, the, the, this the last bit of the show. Um, didn't really get a laugh out of me because I didn't get the joke, to be honest with you. Yeah, me either. I didn't get the joke. I I went. I assumed maybe it was something with the you know the old joke of how you know every old timey Hollywood starlet was accused of or thought of being a lesbian. But even at that point, it there was no joke to it. Although, yeah, I could be wrong. Was this the only appearance that Jane Curtin made in the entire episode? She voiced over the the herstory things. Um, just looking back here, I think this was the only appearance of Jane Curtin, which is a bit of a waste if you ask me. Oh, it's a huge waste. I hadn't noticed because she'd been doing the voiceover, but yeah, she didn't do, uh, yeah, she didn't do anything this episode. What a waste. You're right. Maybe that's because I, I think they gave Jill a lot of Jane-ish roles. That's, oh, uh, for sure, yeah. Because, I mean, like I mentioned, I, I kept thinking, ah, this would be better with Jane. Imagine the poor kid, like the teenage boy who stayed up Saturday night, he's watching SNL. And then he thinks he's going to get like Jane Curtin and Jill Claiborne kissing. And then they just don't like 1230. <laughs> like how bummed out would you be in 1974, 1974 boy? And that's like, uh, they're just going to like stare at each other awkwardly for 30 seconds and then throw it to the end. <laughs> but yeah, it was very, very awkward ending. So we'll go into the epilogue here. We don't get to see Jill again. Um, her career, like I said, peaked a couple of years later. She spent a few years at the top, but then things slowed down for the 80s. Her, her star had fallen as a as an a-lister um and this is not so much due to her abilities i I don't think as much as it is just the lack of roles for women over 35 theater and tv were 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 successful for her um she had several some several high profile television movies with varying degrees of success and quality and some spots on shows like frazier ally mcbeal nip tuck law and order her last film which was actually released posthumously was bridesmaids where she played Kristen wiggs mum, and she died in november 2010 after a 20-year battle with leukemia um so uh that's it for jill claber perhaps a a good riddance from you guys i mean i wouldn't say that about not her. dead no no sorry <laughs> not her death but she's not gonna host again <laughs> that actually that actually does answer the question too because i knew her from somewhere and i just must not have scrolled long enough in her imdb to see that she was the mom in bridesmaids which i've probably seen a dozen times mm-hmm but I mean, it adds up now. It makes sense now thinking of it, but. Huh. And of course her daughter is on American Horror Story. Um, it does quite well. Uh, musical guest Leon Redbone will be back many times and the idlers don't come back. So uh, the idlers are still out there, a group still touring and, and, and doing well for themselves. So, I mean, we don't get Jill, we don't get the Coast Guards, but we do get Leon. So that, that's, that's, that's a fair trade, I think. Absolutely. And uh, Andy Kaufman will be back. And uh, the gentleman with the dog, his name was Bill Waitman. And I think he was, he was an artist. Um, so let's talk about the music. Let's rate all the music. Um, for me, Leon Redbone is exactly what I like, especially at that time of day. And I think it would have felt pretty cool sitting there in 1976 on a dark, smoky night with the old floor model television. Really liked Leon. Thought, thought Jill was not great. And uh, the, uh, the idlers did what they did serviceably, but uh, it didn't work for me. Yeah, I agree 100%. Leon, even though I preferred the first performance more, uh, he was good. I could, I enjoyed both very much. I'd be happy to see him back. Uh, the Idlers, I mean, they were, they were fine. I, I enjoyed them. They sounded great, but it's more of like a, a telethon type performance than what you'd expect to see on 
SNL. And yeah, poor Jill. Like her singing was just uh, awkward. Still uh, has a way to go for me musically, this show. I liked Leon. Uh, again, I check it out, but I can tell, you know, it's so hard with music. It's so subjective. I guess you could say that about comedy too, but I do feel like that's a little more scientific. Anyway, that's a whole debate I shouldn't get into. The, the the choir part was a disaster for me. Jill's a disaster for me, uh, but he was interesting. So I appreciated that. And like I said, it was just different. And this show needed something different. And uh, the host, uh, we're going to talk about Jill Clayberg here. She did what she did. Uh, I, I didn't notice any big glitches in her performance or anything like that. And she seemed to relatively switch easy between characters. Didn't like her singing. But I didn't get her as a. I didn't get that this was good stuff for her, and I don't know if this would have been good stuff for anything. She just didn't work on this night. Maybe another night would have been different. But uh, when I think Saturday Night Live hosts, this is not what I should get from them. I don't think. Yeah, she did okay, but not great. Not even good. I don't even think she did okay. I think she's the worst host the show has had so far i thought she brought she brought nothing to the table and you know despite her efforts maybe it's not her fault that she was booked on this show you know you can't get into that too much but terrible fit and uh yeah i thought she was dreadful in everything she was in i would say that she's probably a matter of being miscast too in terms of i'd say the best thing she did was probably the guidance counselor bit i get the feeling she was probably sending up the type of role she normally plays a bit there. So maybe that's why it worked better. I, I assume she's a dramatic actress more so than a comedic one after uh, watching the episode. And in the way too, I guess if you look back, did she do great? Absolutely not. But I'm sure if you looked at it and went through the scripts, she probably wasn't written a whole lot of really funny bits either. So what can you really do if her thing is that she asks Chevy Chase questions, for example, right? Uh Did she deliver the lines fine? Sure. But would a comedic actor have delivered those lines any better? It's hard to say because there wasn't much to work with either. So the worst bit of the night uh, for you guys? For me, the worst was the, uh, I didn't like any of them, but in particular, the the first herstory was just a bomb for me. Not that I liked them all, but this one was my least favorite. I won't lie. After this, uh, after the episode ended, I looked to my wife and I thought, I even asked her, I said, like, do you think I like did something to make Keith mad at me? Like, why is this the episode I get to be <laughs> coming on? <laughs> I was trying to go through like our history if I like did something because I mean it was it was dog rough. Like, I got there was there's probably four or five segments here that on other episodes would have gotten my worst. So it came down to two for me. One was the final history with the. Uh, the Gandhi stuff, but at least that one had, it wasn't a good joke, but at least they had a bit more structure to it. For me, the worst part was the short film with the dog. I, d- I just didn't get it. And it was awkward at times to watch. And and you and I had the same too. I, I went with the Gandhi bit. The, the runner up there was the dog bit. And uh, so what was your best segment of the night? I'd have to go with Andy Kaufman. I thought that was interesting and unique and I didn't expect it and it made me laugh and it was fun big highlight for me i don't know if this is a cheat but i'd definitely say ain't misbehaving was my favorite Mm part okay i actually went back and like i listened to that song in the car today afterwards uh so that was my best bit as far as best scripted scripted bit i'd probably have to say the little bit with uh chevy chasing his hands oddly enough because it just for some reason it struck my funny bone in a way i didn't expect it to and now that i've seen it i probably don't need to see it again but i enjoyed it 
Yeah, no, I, I went with uh, Andy Kaufman, Old McDonald. Um, honorable mention goes to Car Yummies, which I liked. <laughs> so you're a big star of the night. For me, I'm going to give it to Chevy Chase. You guys have seen a lot more of him than I have lately, so it's probably fresher to me seeing the falls in the beginning, how he sort of, that small little flub he made up for in Weekend Update. Even though I didn't get the jokes, I could tell the jokes were delivered well. And even his reactions during that abysmal date sketch where she kept asking him the questions, he had a pretty limited amount to work with in this episode, I think, compared to maybe some of the other ones. But there's a reason the guy was the first breakout star of the show, I think. And he just has a charisma that really stands out. And it's kind of hard to think of it now, considering how his you know, reputation, I guess, over the years has been tarnished a bit. But I mean, he was incredibly watchable. I guess I would have to give my start to Dan Aykroyd. I really liked his Pitchman segment and the uh, Cheese for Cars. And I mean, I, I admit, I didn't have a lot to pick from this episode. Andy Kaufman was my favorite bit, and that was uh, thanks to the participation. I didn't really dig Chevy stuff, and I didn't really feel like anybody else was in this episode a lot. So I'd have to go with Dan for doing Dan. For me, I, I had to, I really had to watch, I mean, I watched it a couple times, and uh on the per capita laugh scale, it came down to Don Pardo for me. He he had his working boots on tonight. He did six segments, I think. Yeah, I didn't find anyone really brought it tonight, and uh, and I thought he was pretty good. So by default, I went with I went with Pardo. Overall, nothing great here at all. Uh, it was a very meh episode, except for Leon Redbone. The disbursement of parts felt a little more even, but uh, we didn't get much of a few people. We didn't get anything of some. The prime time, not ready for primetime players were, were were pretty good in here, but nothing exceptional uh, for me. It was it was it was Leon Redbone and uh, Andy Kaufman and Mr. Bill, which is not you know steady members of the cast. This was not a shitty episode, but it certainly wasn't solid for me. Some of the jokes were were spread out. There was the odd chuckle in here, but uh, nothing nailed it for me at all. I, I'm actually giving this one a four point five out of ten. I found after watching this episode, and I feel bad, you know, you guys asked me to come on, even though I don't have a lot of positive things to say about the episode itself. Um, there were definitely a few highlights here and there, but I found the biggest takeaway I had was that really, this episode really made me appreciate like Terry Gilliam and the way like Monty Python was able to get out of sketches. That was probably the biggest drawback for me. The whole episode was sketches would just end on like the warthog thing or like just very damp endings for sketches that weren't strong to begin with. So it is nice. Like I said, makes me appreciate you now how Monty Python is able to just say, you know what, the sketch is over. We're going to go to something completely random and awkward to get out of it. So you're not just sitting there being brought down. But yeah, overall, uh, Leon Redbone <laughs> was, was pretty enjoyable. At a 10, I would probably have to give it about a four. Yeah. I'm going to come in below you guys. I'm going to give this a three. Uh, I thought the host was absolutely useless. Uh, I thought the absence of Jane Curtin and Dan Aykroyd, even though he popped up a little, was there. Misguided sketches, pedophilia jokes, uh, useless musical performances, retread jokes, like Gilda Radner on Weekend Update. I get it. I'm done. Just not the cool show that we've come to expect. Huge disappointment if you stayed home on a Saturday night to catch this. Okay, so our average on this is our lowest 
And the IMDb rating for this is actually 7.2. So we uh, we come in way under the exchange rate that we've been using. Yeah, I think, you know, when I was looking at that, I'm thinking people are seeing the debut of Mr. Bill, Andy Kaufman, possibly Leon Redbone, and ignoring everything else you have to sit through to get to that. So, uh, so yeah, this having a 7.2 and being the eighth best episode of the season um, is is... And injustice, I believe. Madness. Were all the reviews written before Labor died, or <laughs> that's that's insanely high for what I would expect? Yeah, I mean this this did better than like the Desi Arnaz episode. It did better than uh, the Elliot Gould episode, Candace Bergen's too. I mean this uh, somebody somebody out there. I think I, I honestly think they're cherry picking the good stuff. Probably Mr. Bill's debut. If I were to put it on anything such an iconic part of early snl mm-hmm. even for me i even said i appreciated it more knowing it was the first one so i'm just as guilty of that as they are probably in terms yeah. of it's new so you give it a big rating well this was not a great episode but it was a fun time uh, sitting around chatting about it uh chili and matt for sure absolutely thanks again for having me well thank you and hopefully you can come back later down the line for a different episode <laughs> a better one I always think the bad ones might be more fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we said one time. If it's really good or really bad, we got a good, uh, we'll have fun with it. So uh, we'll be back in about a week with our uh, host, Anthony Perkins, and musical guest, uh, Betty Carter. I want to thank you again, Chili, for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. And thanks thank again, you. Matt. Thank you. And until then, Matt and I will be showing Chili the sights and letting him hear the sounds of S and Hell.